Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Today's episode is going to feature two gentlemen from the Wisconsin Veterans Museum. The Wisconsin Veterans Museum's mission is to acknowledge, commemorate, and affirm the role of Wisconsin veterans in the United States of America's military past and present. Uh, th they have a lot of programs going on, and we're going to dive into all of that, as well as our two guests' personal history and uh, Eric Wright's actual service. Um, we're going to get to all of that in this episode, um, but if you don't know anything about the Wisconsin Veterans Museum, you can visit them on their website at wisvetsmuseum.com. That's wisvetsmuseum, all one word, dot com. You can get a lot of information about their archive, about all the programs that they have, or you can just watch or listen to this episode. I was so excited for Eric and Chris to join me to talk about the museum, uh, and I plan on having more museums on the scuttlebutt in the future. Um, as what I've learned in this episode is that there are a lot of archives that actually live on base, uh, on different military bases, that we as civilians have either difficulty uh, accessing or no access to. So the Wisconsin Veterans Museum is actually one uh, run by the, uh, the state that you can access for free. So I hope that you enjoy this episode and this conversation with Eric and Chris. I know I did, and I know I'm going to be looking into a lot more of the programs and taking part in those programs because uh, they just seem like they have a lot of really fun things going on. And as they speak to ways that they're helping to bridge the military-civilian divide, which is just pretty much exactly what the Scuttlebutt is all about. So thank you for watching. Uh, and if you are the first time viewer of the Scuttlebutt, please go back and check out all of our past episodes. Uh, you can check them out across podcast platforms or on YouTube. And thanks for watching. Thanks, Sean. Uh, it's good to be here. Thanks for inviting us on. We really appreciate it. Um, my name is Eric Wright. I'm the education specialist at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin. I've been here for um, almost four years now. Um, and been working in museums uh, uh, systems for 12 years, uh, always in a military capacity. Um, but uh, not to not to because my boss is on here. I'm not saying it because he's there. But this is this is one of the finest institutions I've worked for, um, as far as putting a state's military history or just military history in general out there for the public, uh, and trying to bridge that divide between you know the civilian and military worlds. Um, and show everybody out there, you know, what the military is really about and the challenges that we face on a daily basis that we have faced uh, for a very long time now. And so it's just, it's, it's very exciting to work here at this museum. I really, I really love my job. And you saying the, <laughs> one of the finest institutions you've been a part of, you've been a part of the military. So is that, is, right. that on, is it on par? Uh, yeah. um, well, I mean, nothing's on par with, with being in the military you know, sitting inside an M1A1 tank and, and rolling across the desert at 60 miles an hour, shooting things four miles away. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing equates to that. Um, but in the civilian world, um, this, you know, what we do here and, and the way that we do it, uh, it's just, it's, it's a really great institution. Uh, we've got great leadership. Uh, we've got great stories to tell. All the stories that we tell are uh, Wisconsin centric. So we're always talking about our veterans here. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the things that we like to do here at the museum is just tell those Wisconsin veterans stories rather than just going through a chronology of military history. Um, and it just really engages our audience, whether that's school groups coming in or veterans groups or just people off the streets who are just visiting Madison for an afternoon. Uh, it just really engages them that way and brings them in a little bit closer to the stories that we're trying to tell and what we're trying to do here. At the museum. And Eric, real quick before we introduce Chris, uh, what branch and what years? Uh, so I was in the U.S. Army uh, from 90 to 98, uh, Desert Storm veteran. And then after I got out of the Army, I was a Navy civilian for four years as well, uh, working uh, for their museum systems from uh, 2014 to 2018. Excellent. And Chris, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us on the Scuttlebutt. Hey, thanks for having us, Sean. Uh, my name is Chris Kolakowski. I'm the director of the Wisconsin Veterans Museum, and I'm Eric's boss. Um, I... Uh, Come to, came to Wisconsin back in January of 2020, so about 10 weeks before the pandemic hit. Oh boy. Um, my background is, is history and mass communications and public history. Um, worked for the National Park Service, Kentucky State Parks, uh, ran museums for the US Army as a civilian for a while, um, was director of the MacArthur Memorial, um, have basically spent my career preserving and interpreting military history in the United States from 1775 to the present. 
and I'll be honest, one of the reasons I came here, and I'm not just saying that because one of my staff members is here, one of the reasons I came to this museum is because, as Eric said, it's one of the best state-run military museums in the entire country. And the passion and professionalism of the staff. I've visited many times. I've got family from Wisconsin. I've got many Wisconsin veterans in my family tree going back to the Civil War. And so I knew this museum. I knew the staff. And, and when the opportunity came along to be a part of what was going to happen, um, I, you know, I couldn't pass it up. And it, even with everything that's happened with the pandemic and everything, it's been a great move. Um, and to Eric's point, you know, we are the Wisconsin Veterans Museum. We, we tell the military history of Wisconsin from 1861 to the present, but we're about more than just military history, as Eric said. We tell, we tell the story of people. We believe every veteran is a story, no matter who you are, no matter when you serve, no matter the rank, and it deserves preservation and, the, the, and, and being shared with people. Mm -hmm. um, Wisconsin was there. There are a tremendous amount of historical events that people know that don't realize there's a Wisconsin connection. And then the last one is this still matters. Um, everything we talk about is relevant. Um, and there's some relevance to today. There's some, something to learn from, be inspired by, you know, take it what you will. Um, and so the opportunity to be a part of the future of the museum, um, it's, 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 it was just something I couldn't pass up. Certainly. And, and Chris, you seem to have touched a bit upon the, the museum's mission. I wonder if you could speak to it uh, more specifically uh, and how long you know, it's been around. The museum has been around since 1901. We were founded in the state capitol as the GAR Memorial Hall by members of the Grand Army of the Republic, which for those who may not be familiar was the veterans organization of Union Civil War veterans. So the first people to have our jobs were Civil War veterans. And we were founded by the veterans for the people of Wisconsin. And that's something I always tell whenever I do tours. We are, we are by veterans for the people of Wisconsin. And uh, we've been around since then. We were in the Capitol. We moved to our current facility in 1993, um, kind of outgrowing it. And we're looking at what the future is going to be. But we're located right in downtown Madison, directly across from the state museum or the state Capitol. Um, we're free. We're open to the public six days a week. And, uh, you know, we take our mission very, very seriously. And, you know, to, to Eric's one quick point on what Eric said about civil military divide, one of the points I make to people is, when you think about military museums in this country, particularly the ones run by the Department of Defense, the vast majority of them are on post or on base, and so they're behind a security perimeter. We are one of the very few museums that you can visit um, that, is owned, that is run by a government agency that tells military history and you don't have to go through security. And so we, we take our mission of connecting, connecting Wisconsinites and Americans with the military and veterans, we take that very, very seriously. That speaks directly to not only the podcast here, or, but also BBC as a whole, just the civil divide and just trying to bridge that. Uh, we talk about that all the time here on the Scuttlebutt. And um, Eric, I, I wonder if you could, you could speak a bit to, to that history, being the education specialist. Uh, you bring in groups, you talk to them you know, about the exhibits, everything that's going on at the museum. Um, it's, I find it amazing that as early as 1901, the military was already trying to do that, was trying to already bridge that divide. Oh, absolutely. I think the, I think the military has been trying to bridge that divide since its inception, actually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we started as a, a, a citizen army. Um, you know, these were citizen soldiers coming in. They had no formal military training. And of course, I'm talking about, you know, revolution. Mm -hmm. um, and even uh, if you look at the War of 1812, Civil War as well, you really don't think you really don't start seeing a modern army that that we would recognize until you know right around the 1900s um and so i think that always having the the citizen or the 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 civilian divide between you know what is perceived by the general public and what actually happens in the military has always been around and, and they've always tried to 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 shorten that divide i guess or to bridge it with knowledge um, and, and that's just a continuation of what we're doing here today. Uh, the other military museums I've worked at as well, like Chris said, they're a lot harder to access, uh, but they still try to do the same types of, um, they, they, they try to accomplish the same mission. And that's not being a place of recruitment or nationalism, um, but a place to, to let people see 
what their military is doing for them and how they are helping not only in wars and in you know, all the things that we would associate with the military, but in other aspects as well. Um, peacekeeping, um, aid um, to, to whoever might need it and just endeavors like that. And so just being able to show you know, communities all around the US that this is what the military is out there doing for you. We're not always carrying weapons. We're not always firing our tanks. Um, we're, we're out there for a lot, for, for a much bigger purpose. And so I think that's really important. Um, and, and like Chris said, that's one of our main missions here, one of our main goals. Uh, and I think we're really successful. Education is so key, so key in, in bridging this divide. Um, and that is another thing that I, I hadn't heard of as a civilian is that there's a lot of museums that are that are on base, I guess, that, that you can't access or is it more difficult to access? It's absolutely more difficult to access. I yeah. mean, uh, for instance, uh, the official U.S. Navy Museum is on the Washington Naval Yard. Uh, good luck trying to get on there to, to see that museum. And that's a fantastic museum. I mean, you could spend days in there looking at their collections and, and, and reviewing the stories that they tell. But getting on Washington Naval Yard is, is very difficult. Uh, the new infantry museum that just opened up at Fort Benning, Georgia, it's on base as well. And so that's difficult to access also. Um, so there is a lot of, um, I don't want to say issues, uh, with accessing those museums, but certainly it is a difficult endeavor sometimes. Chris, could you talk a bit about uh, what Eric just mentioned, access? Um, and, and you said it's free for anybody coming to the museum. Uh, how, how is it that you just physically access the building and, and how easy is it to get in through the, you know, to the events and the programs and the exhibits? Literally, we are on a storefront right at the top of State Street. If you're, if anybody's familiar with Madison, Wisconsin, you know, State mm -hmm. Street is kind of the main main artery connecting the campus on one end of the University of Wisconsin and on the other end is the state capitol. So we are literally actually in an old converted department store. Hmm. So you can literally walk in whenever we're open, the doors are open, you just walk in, there's no, no rigmarole of going through a security gate. And I, I the army museums I worked at, um, one was behind the wire and had to go through a security check too. And the other one at Fort Knox, we had a dedicated entrance. You could leave your car and then walk through a lockable turnstile over to the museum. Um, but still, there's a perception. It's off-putting. We don't have any of that. You can just literally open a door, walk in. Our front desk people and our store people are right there. They'll get you oriented and get you get you engaging with what we're doing. And uh, I, think it's, it's, I don't mean to interrupt. I think it's funny. Uh, I, I'm often downstairs. And the look on people's faces when you tell them it's free. Um, you know, there's not a whole yeah. lot of free things left in this world. That's uh, true. But to walk into our museum and, and they start pulling out their wallet and they're like, how much does it cost to get in? Not, not a charge at all. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to be able to provide these events uh, free of charge for, for anybody who wants to come in and learn about it. Um, it certainly probably helps out with, with schools and whatnot, schools that want to come in and get and educate their students as well. Do you do many uh, school tours? Oh, my goodness. Uh, we just got done with our uh, school tour season, as we call it, uh, which basically runs from February to the end of May to the end of the school year. Mm -hmm. um, we get roughly 200. Uh, 200 was a, a good month of tours uh, right now. Uh, as we're looking at post-COVID, pre-COVID, uh, we would sometimes get uh, anywhere from 300 to 350 tours a month, uh, school tours. And so, yeah, we, we get slammed during uh, the spring as everybody's closing out the school year. Um, Wisconsin uh, uh, state's um, code or what have you looks at uh, civil war um, toward the end of the school year. Uh, and so a lot of teachers want to come and focus on that. And that's right where our exhibits start is right on the civil war. So they, they have a, a high emphasis on that, but they enjoy the rest of the tours as well. Um, I, I don't have the numbers right here in front of me. I know that we were pushing right around 3,500 students a month uh, for the past few months. Uh, and like I said, those are post-COVID numbers. Pre-COVID numbers were much higher. We are getting back up to those pre-COVID numbers, but I think that's going to take maybe another, uh, another season or two. And one out of every three of our visitors, Sean, is related somehow to a school tour or an educational institution which if I could be cosmic for just a second, 
to me is really important because all the everything that we're doing, if the next generation doesn't appreciate the val or value what we're you know this history, this legacy, what veterans are and what they've done, then our work is diminished. And so what Eric does and what his team does um, is very important because that that's the next generation of visitors. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones we're going to pass. We're, we're just custodians for our, our time here. And then they're the ones we're going to pass it to going forward. So this is another area that's of great emphasis to us for sure. Speaking specifically more to the stories that you collect, um, you know, here at BBC, we're all about the stories. That's pretty much what we build our mission around is veterans telling stories and creating community around that. Um, as you look through your archive, how do you present these stories? If we go back to the Civil War, uh, walking through the museum, how, how do you interact with or engage with the stories from this history? So what we do is we try not just to tell the unique stories, but also the stories that serve as connecting points through history. Um, so for instance, when you come into our Civil War gallery and, and, and we, we, we're doing a lot better, we're doing a better job of this and we're constantly trying to improve ourselves as far as the types and the, the content of the stories that we tell. So we have um, just recently, since we've come back from COVID, uh, have, have shown how the Civil War wasn't fought by just a bunch of old white guys. Uh, we, we have a small section that's dedicated to uh, the African-American soldiers that fought on the side of the Union. Um, and so we've got three great pictures of these gentlemen with their GAR service ribbons. And like Chris said, the GAR is an organization of these Union veterans. So this is after already after the Civil War, um, and they were accepted into this organization. Uh, this is still in the 1800s. Um, so this is kind of diversification uh, at a very early level. Um, and, and so those stories really impact people. They, they see that it wasn't, like I said, just a bunch of old white guys fighting this war. This was actually a national endeavor and everybody was, was pitching in on both sides um, to, to, to see this thing to an end, whatever end you, know, you wanted it to be depending on which side you're on. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, you know, we, we like to tell the stories of, of the heroics uh, that happened on the battlefield as well. Uh, Rodney Williams, one of my favorite stories, World War II pilot, uh, his, or I'm sorry, World War I pilot, uh, his story was fantastic. He has to plug a hole in his gas tank as he's flying his biplane over German lines, uh, has to plug it with his thumb. He also has to tend to wounds that he has on his body as he's trying to fly this plane and, and, and perform this reconnaissance, reconnaissance mission. Um, he ends up performing the reconnaissance mission gets all the way back to his aerodrome as he's landing his plane, still plugging the, the fuel tank with his thumb. Uh, he passes out from his loss of blood, the plane crashes. Uh, and so these stories of heroics are also inspiring, um, but then some of them as well are, are a little more sad. Uh, we have a fantastic uh, Medal of Honor exhibit uh, and we tell the story of four Medal of Honor winners uh, from Wisconsin over time. And while those are inspiring as well, it's just tragic to hear about the end of these young lives. Um, but at the same time, this is the history that we're dealing with. And, and you can't go back and change history. All you can do is put it out there for the public and for the people, make the connections um, that Chris was saying, you know, it still matters. Things that are happening today uh, are directly related to things that happened 100, 200 years ago. And you make those connections for the public. Um, and it just makes them not only more aware, but it also gives them a, a, a little more sense of pride, I think. Chris, you spoke a bit earlier about there, there's a lot of Wisconsin connections that a lot of people don't know about. Um, can, we, can you speak a bit more about those connections? I'll give you two prominent ones um, that most people, most people know, but may not realize there's a Wisconsin connection. Uh, the first is the flag raising on Iwo Jima on February 23rd, 1945. You know, the famous Joe Rosenthal photograph, which is the model for the Marine Corps Memorial in, in Washington or in Arlington. Um, most people don't realize there are two Wisconsin connections there. First of all, the company commander that sent the patrol up to put the second large flag mm-hmm. was from Milwaukee. He just died last year at the age of 102. And then the woman that developed the photograph and was the first person to see it when it, when it came over the wire to Marine Public Affairs um, in, uh, in Honolulu at the Marine Corps headquarters there in Honolulu, 
the woman that developed it and the first person to see it uh, before it got worldwide distribution uh, lived in Madison after the war. So these oh. are two, and we have, we have a display, we have her uniform on display with the photograph telling her story. And your reaction is exactly the reaction. You know, a lot of people know that story, mm-hmm. but they may not realize, again, Wisconsin was there. Uh, one of the other ones we have is, is just before the pandemic, we were given um, from the family of a, of a sailor named Mark Nieto, who was one of the 12 uh, victims, uh, the bombing of the USS Cole in October mm-hmm. of 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, he was from Fond du Lac and he was in, he was, we, we've got his uniforms. We've got a lot of, a lot of items related to him, but one of the things we have that we put out on display and it illustrates that the age old thing that the soldier or sailor or airman or marine is not the only one that goes goes off and serves. The families also serve as yeah. as a world a unit history from World War One. I'm I'm fond of said though they also serve who stand and wait. Talking about the family, mm-hmm. we have the box that his ashes were in, and when the coal went out the next time, um, his fiance that he had been engaged to. Um, put his ashes over the side. Part of, him's, part of his ashes are in Fond du Lac, the rest are in the Atlantic. Um, and his mother kissed the tag before, uh, on the dock before the coal took off wow. and or, or set sail. And mm. her, we have the box on display and you can still see her lipstick, her final goodbye. Incredible. And that people, a lot of people know the coal, may not realize there's a Wisconsin connection. And then there's this really powerful human story mm-hmm. um, that is just, that's one of the places I usually get people getting misty when I tell that story on tours. Yeah, Eric, yeah, yeah, I, I know you're the same way. Yeah. So, but th- that, that, those illustrate some of what I was talking about earlier and some of the approach that we make is we're trying to, we're trying to get people to see the humanity behind this history. These, these are not people in black and white photographs. These are not people that, or have nothing in common with us, quite the opposite. There's actually far, far more in common than a lot of people uh, may realize. And again, it's through making those connections that we're able to get people to engage further with what we're doing. I was gonna say that is the, probably the most difficult part is humanizing uh, the pictures, the artifacts that, that you receive. And, and who do you have that, that, you know, do you have docents that take people on tours, you know, know the stories, are able to communicate them? I'm sure it's very difficult when you do have a school come through and trying to humanize who these men and women were, these brave people that, that served the country. Um, how do you tell that story through the museum? Uh, it all depends on who you're speaking to. Uh, certainly, you know, if you're talking to a veterans group, you're going to portray those stories in a different way than if you're talking to a group of fourth graders. Mm-hmm. Um, so it all depends on, on who comes through, uh, who you're talking to. And then of course, you know, as, as, as you're talking to them, you, you pick up on visual clues, body language, things like that. Um, and so you alter your, uh, your tour or your script, uh, depending on who, who you were talking to. Um, but, uh, to your point, yeah, we do have a, a great, uh, dedicated host of docents, uh, who, who serve here at the museum. Also the education team, it's, not just me. I have two great employees that work for me. They do a fantastic job. Uh, they're not military uh, either, so uh, their perspective is a little different than mine. Um, but and, and a lot of our docents aren't uh, veterans either. We do have veteran docents, but we have a lot of people who come in who just you know want to do their part. Um, you know, maybe they're a little too old to serve in the military anymore, or maybe they're too established in their career. Um, I do have a docent who volunteers here because he wants to honor his uncle's legacy mm-hmm. in World War II. Um, so there's a lot of different reasons why they come in. Um, and then, you know, when you're talking to, to our guests that, that come in the museum, like I said, it, it all depends on how you present the information and who you're presenting it to. Um, not that we change anything or, or not, I guess, changes in the right word. We don't water anything down. We still tell the story. Um, but you just have to kind of tailor it to who, to who it is you're speaking to. Uh, speaking about the the artifacts that you have at the museum, how do you come about those? Is it mostly through donations, uh, and is it all from just the Wisconsin state of Wisconsin and veterans from you know people's families that that offer uh, pieces of their their service? 
a lot of what we've gotten our collection from several different areas. First of all, um, we are the custodian of the Civil War battle flag collection for the state of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So there have been transfers from the state and some things that we've gotten, say, from the Wisconsin National Guard, things of that nature, from official sources. A lot of what we've gotten has come from families and has come has come through the door or come from people contacting us and basically entrusting us with their family history, their family memories. Sometimes it's the veterans themselves. Sometimes it's descendants. Um, there have been a, quite a few recently where we've had two and three generations all from the same family all coming in where World War One, World War Two, and then usually Vietnam um, is what we'll get. But that's where we get a lot of it. Um, we are working hard to make sure that our collection is representative, both of the, you know, the wide, diverse group of people that call Wisconsin home, um, but also of the various services as well. Um, as you can imagine, the Army tends to predominate because it tends to be the largest service. Right. But we also want to make sure that, that other services are not left behind also. Um, and so we do, we do do some targeted solicitations for donations, but it's always donations. You know, if people want to donate their things, we, we are happy to have that conversation. So there is a residency requirement, just since we're talking to a national audience, um, there is a residency requirement, um, and you can find that information on our website. Um, but there is, there, yeah, there has to be some sort of Wisconsin connection. Um, and if we say no, we do try and, or if somebody inquires and it's not something we can engage with, we do try and, and point them in a, in a direction that might be more fruitful. Right. Um, speaking specific, more specifically to family, and Chris, maybe more specifically to your own personal story, you mentioned that you were a civilian that worked for the Army. I seem to, for whatever reason, over the last several weeks, I've been talking to more civilians who actually had jobs with the military. It's something that also was something that I was kind of unaware of that you could work for a branch of the military without actually enlisting. Um, can you speak a bit to your own personal history with that? Like, how did that come about? Why did you decide to do that? I ended up running to, uh, museums for the U.S. Army at Fort McPherson, Georgia, and then later Fort Knox, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, and I, being Park Service, I'd been already been familiar with the federal civilian system, and I'd gotten familiar with some colleagues who worked in the Department of Defense uh, museums. And I really liked what the Army was doing. And um, it was an opportunity to move up. To be honest, the career ladder was a bit, bit, a bit, uh, there was a bit more opportunity than there was in the Park Service for me. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what I ended up doing. But it was, I, I worked, and this is the thing I, I a couple of things I, I always tell people. Number one, the Army was born on June 14th, 1775. The Army hired its first civilians on June 16th, 1775. They hired two ordinance clerks. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing you learn when you go through, they do an, an orientation. And that's one of the things you learn is that, that there's been civilian employees with the army as long as there, almost as long as there has been an army. And one of the things that's happened since the end of the Cold War is you find a lot of jobs, particularly running posts, running bases, you know, kind of the behind the scenes infrastructure, non-deployable infrastructure. Mm -hmm. has been civilianized, where in the Cold War and in the time of the draftee army, a lot of those jobs were done by people in uniform. Mm -hmm. um, you don't see soldiers cutting grass anymore, that sort of thing. Right. Um, you don't see soldiers doing the base maintenance. Part of that is museums, and actually by regulation, military, most DOD museums have to be heavily civilian because of the continuity. They don't change people every three years, right. like they do in uniform. There's a continuity there of memory and institute you know, for, for all those reasons. Um, and that's, a lot of people don't realize that. And it is, it's a revelation. I've, I worked with people at Fort Knox that worked for the army for 25 years as a civilian, never wore the uniform, mm -hmm. but uh, they were proud to work for the army and, and support the, the, the green suitors, support the folks in uniform. I know, Eric, I know you and I have talked, you felt the same way about, about the Navy. My dad was a Navy civilian after his army service, um, you know, you're still, you're part of the military. You're not in uniform, but you are part of the military and what you're doing supports the mission of the military. And I found it very fulfilling. I really, I'm really proud of, of my army civilian service. And Even if it's not the same, I still am very proud of it. But you came from like a military family. So there was sort of a history in your family of, of service. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got, uh, 
of actually in my family tree uh, going back to the Pennsylvania militia in the revolution on one branch of my family. Um, from, from there, every conflict forward to the current one, I have, I have family members in, uh, mostly from Wisconsin, but, but from other states as well. Um, and so there's that ethos of, of service, you know, public service in some ways has been the family business. Uh, Eric, speaking specifically to your personal background, you come from a military family as well? I do. Um, my great-great-grandfather served in World War One. My grandfather served in World War II. My father served in Vietnam. Um, now, you know, it comes to me. Uh, I did my service in the Army, uh, Desert Storm. And now my son uh, is a captain in, in the U.S. Army as well. Uh, he's right in the middle of a PCS move. Um, so, yeah, my family is is not quite as, as steeped as Chris's uh, in their military background. Um, well, I don't know, maybe we are, you know, perhaps uh, if, I, if I do a little research, I might find that we go back a little further. Uh, but I definitely know from World War I on, um, aside from Korea um, and, and our current conflicts, uh, you know, my family has, has, a, has a fantastic uh, military uh, background. Um, and it's just something that's, that's always, it, it was never like preached in, in, in my family, but it was always brought up. Nobody was afraid to talk about, um, you know, what they had experienced and it, it wasn't, from a negative or a positive perspective, it was just you know this is life. This is what we did. This is what happened. Um, well, that's rare. Been, uh, I I think so. Unfortunately, um, I, I I maybe maybe I'm a little altruistic and 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 I'm hoping that people out there talk about their service that way um, as as just a part of their life because that's really what your military service is. I mean, it means a lot more to you, uh, but it, in reality, it, it's just a part of your life. There's there's life before service and life after service. Um, and you can make both just as, as fulfilling and as enriching as your service career. Um, but it's just, it's just always been a real positive experience. And, and it's kind of, it would, well, it's sort of led me to go down that route. Uh, there was a lot of other reasons why I joined, um, but it's just been fantastic. And then being able to serve the military community and the veteran community afterwards, um, it, it wasn't my game plan, but I knew that those opportunities were out there. Um, and so once I was kind of set up to take advantage of those opportunities, I thought, you know, this, this is, this is the way to go. This is going to be, you know, the perfect career choice for me. And uh, it's, it's paid off so far. It's just been wonderful. What were some of the other reasons why you decided to enlist? Oh, geez. <laughs> As our um, marketing specialist puts it, uh, she, I, I, we have a magazine uh, that our foundation puts out called the Bugle. And uh, every issue is, you know, there's a section on meet the staff. Um, and I was the staff uh, that was spotlighted in this last issue. And as our marketing manager put it, the West Coast punk scene just didn't really do it for me. And I had to do something else. Uh, otherwise, I'd be in jail or I'd be in a lot worse trouble. Um, and so I decided to do something about it. And I joined the Army. And that's, you know, really, you know, that's the, the, the bulk of my reason to join was just to get out of Southern California, get out of the, the bad situations that I was constantly putting myself into. Um, I, I, while I did have a great um, uh, family legacy of military service, um, I was not adhering to that as, as, as a kid or as a young mm -hmm. adult. Um, and I just really decided that I, I needed that direction. I needed that focus. Um, and I needed that, uh, just that, that, that purpose, I guess. Um, and it was clear to me within the first month of uh, my basic training program at Fort Knox uh, that I'd found my place. As a side question, I wanna get more to your service, but uh, Chris, you, you were at Fort Knox. I'm assuming both of you were not at Fort Knox at the same time. No. I don't know, Are, were we? we? I don't think we've ever talked about this. I was there 09 to 13, Eric. I, I think that was a few years after you. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's just a couple years after me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but Eric, did you visit that museum at Fort Knox when you were there? Oh, uh, yeah. It was, it was actually, it was kind of mandatory. Uh, it was, you know, visit the, the Patton Museum Day, um, learn about the people uh, who had come before you, um, what their inspirations were, and, and, and just learn about what service means. Um, you know, a lot of the, the kids that have go into basic training, uh, you know, they all have their own reasons for going in. 
Um, and maybe just a few of them, just a small fraction of them really know what that service means and that's why they're doing it. Um, and so when you are going through your basic training to be able to go to a place like that and read about those stories and hear these people talk about you know, who has come before you and why they've done what they've done, um, it really just, it, it, it kind of opens your eyes mm -hmm. and, and kind of tunes you into, hey, there, there's something bigger here than just me um, or my platoon or my battle buddy or what have you. Um, this, is, this is something that's really important. Has so to yeah, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say it has to, I'm just thinking of this, it has to land a lot differently with somebody who's enlisted in basic training, seeing this museum and learning about the guys who came before them um, and a civilian who walks in and just kind of wants to learn about, you know, a battle or learn about a, a particular, you know, particular war. Um, I, I find that very intriguing that I would, I would take, I, I would take in that museum very differently than you were taking it in. And I want, you know, if you see that with the people that come through the Wisconsin Veterans Museum. Well, here's the question I put to you, Sean, we might walk into it uh, looking at different things, but when we walk out, do you think we still are looking at different things? Oh boy, I'm gonna have to ruminate on on that. It's uh, it's, it's rhetorical, yeah. of course, but yeah. it, but my point is that is that when you come out, um, that's that's what really matters, not why you went in, but mm -hmm. when you come out and what you take away from it. Um, I can see I, why I, you're the education specialist. <laughs> I, well, it goes it goes back to something we talked about earlier, Sean. You know, when you were asking how do we present in on tours, and one of the things Eric said is, I, it's different tours for different groups. That's one of the reasons why uh, we, we try and meet the audience where they are, mm. you know, if uh, and, and, you know, that's one of the reasons when you go in most of the time in our exhibit labels, we note where the hometowns are, mm -hmm. because if you visit from a certain region, oh, that's I know that place or, oh, I know where that is or mm -hmm. that's my town, you know, and that's a way to hook in you know, mil military branch. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. We try and find a way for people when they come in, whether they're with a tour or not, we try and find a way for people to recognize some part of themselves, find some hook somewhere in the museum mm -hmm. um, and try and open as wide an aperture as we can. Because to your question, what attracts people to the museum is different. What will hook them into our stories is different. The thing is, as to Eric's point, hook them in and have them come away with, you know, the three things we talked about, an appreciation for what veterans have done, appreciation for the great stories and the great legacy that, that we preserve and share every day. And I think that's where I would share, I, I would share leaving a museum with either active duty or, or, or a veteran is the appreciation for what has come before. Um, that's, that's where I would think leaving some, you know, leaving and learning about these stories that I, I would I would find the same level, maybe the same level of appreciation. Um, certainly not the same level of understanding, I think, um, but certainly the same level of appreciation for for what they did. And that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's speak about all the amazing programs you have. Uh, you know, I, just going to your website, you click on exhibits or you click on events, and you have a lot of events that go on at the museum. You you guys are not sleeping. So, um, Eric or Chris, uh, let's let's open up that book a bit. Let, what what do you have going on? Uh, so right now, um, we we were doing a lot of events uh, pre-COVID. Once COVID hit, we had to figure out a way to still stay relevant, uh, not only to our mission at the museum, but also to the public as well. Um, you know, everybody's at home. We were at home for eighteen months, um, so we had to figure out a way to stay relevant stay in the public eye uh, and not just disappear. Um, and so what we did is we took everything online. We took everything virtual. Um, and we created a whole slate of programming around that. Uh, we do, uh, of course, we know that we do book talks with uh, military historians. Uh, we also do what we call a curator conversation. Where we have different staff members talk about different aspects of military history or different aspects of the museum. Um, but then we tried to make it fun as well and try to bring in audiences that maybe we weren't getting before. Mm -hmm. um, and we had an in-house um, uh, artist uh, and, and who was a veteran as well. Uh, and she created a program called Drink and Draw. Uh, and so we look at uh, different uh, pieces from our collection 
and she's a fantastic artist. I, I got to say, I, I sit in on this every month. Tomorrow night is another one. Um, so just watching her being able to engage with the public uh, and, and bring in these pieces from our collection and just basically show people how to draw. It's been, it's been so eye-opening. My artistic uh, creativity and, and level has not improved any since uh, we started that program, but that's more on me, not on her. Um, Paint by numbers isn't a bad thing. <laughs> And we also do a, a monthly trivia night. Um, and now that we're back at the museum on a full-time basis, we're starting to do more in-house programming as well. Uh, we're bringing back a quarterly um, event that we've had for quite a while now called Mess Night. Uh, it's not a, a traditional Mess Night as most military people would uh, would recognize it, but it's, it's a nice dinner um, and a, a guest speaker comes in. Uh, we have had fantastic guest speakers, uh, presidents, or the education director from the Iwo Jima Association of the United States. Uh, we've had uh, 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 Chris Kalenda, who is a retired colonel, uh, served in Afghanistan. He'll be speaking next month. We just had some wonderful presenters for that mess night um, event that we put on. And, that, and like I said, that's quarterly. And then we're also able to get back to our biggest events of the year, uh, which is a cemetery tour that we do here. We have a fantastic uh, cemetery in Madison called Forest Hill Cemetery. Uh, it is actually a public park, um, so it's not what you would think of when you think of a cemetery. It is more like a public park. It is a beautiful space in the city. Uh, we do school tours all throughout the week in October, uh, and then on Saturday night, we do uh, public tours uh, by candlelight, and then on Sunday, we do public tours during the day. That brings around three to 4,000 people out during that week, so that's always been a really fantastic program and we're our 24th year of doing that uh, this year. Um, and then just all kinds of, of other events that pop up. We are trying to work with Wisconsin Public Television right now uh, to bring a series into the museum uh, for guest lecturers as far as that goes. Uh, just there's so many things going on, just so many. And then of course we do a regular speakers bureau outreach uh, component where we have staff members go out in the community as requested and talk about different aspects of not only our museum, but Wisconsin history as well. Um, and then our tour season, or just our regular tour season at the museum. So you're right, we do have a lot going on uh, and sleep is uh, at a minimal for sure. <laughs> Probably not as bad as when you were in the military, but certainly it's busy. pretty much on par. Yeah, and, and in this, it, also, I mean, you have a golf outing. You just look on your website, you have the movie night, which I'm excited to, to jump in on and be a part of. Um, oh, my goodness. Don't even get me started about my movie nights. I love that's my a, movie that's a special That's a special passion of Eric's there is, wow. is the movie night. Yeah. I, I love this. My my history, and for the audience, the Scuttlebutt audience, they know I have a background in acting. So we do, every season, we do a, gen, a Generation 9-11 movie review here on the Scuttlebutt. We just finished up one you know, last week. Um, so if you haven't listened to it, to my audience, go back and listen to it. Um, but we made sure because there are so many World War II movies, there's so many Vietnam movies, but what are the newest movies that are coming out? So my co-hosts and I, we always break down the newest like Generation 9-11 movies um, just to see like, how are they stacking up? Um, of course, we had to do Top Gun, which was one of the most recent ones and a lot of fun. Um, uh, but one thing that you mentioned, and it's, it has to do with the, the program you have coming up is the Drink and Draw. And I, and again, for my scuttlebutt audience, they know that I have sort of have this sort of side passion in talking with veterans about how they communicate their story through art. Um, oh, okay. As my background in acting, I've had, you know, veteran actors on, veteran painters, veteran sculptors, um, the whole, the whole gamut uh, of artists come on and talk about how they communicate their story. And Eric, I wanted to ask you specifically because you say, yeah, I have not gotten been better at artist, artistry, but how do you like to communicate your story through art? Um, well, like I said, I don't I don't run that program. I just host it. Uh, it it's run by our, our in-house artist. Uh, her name is Yvette Pino, she, and, and she's uh, an Iraq vet, uh, 82nd Airborne Division, Chris, if I'm not mistaken. 101st. 101st. There you 101st, go. Sorry. yes. Um, and, and, and what she does, and, and it kind of, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but what she does is she, she brings that divide closer together from the civilian and the military world. Um, everybody, well, I can't say that. I, I'm gonna, I make make a pretty good bet though that everybody who comes in on that program is a civilian, maybe has minimal military connections through family members, uh, but that is minimal. And so the collection pieces that she brings out not only 
are the, the 3D um, artifacts, but also uh, prints from our archival collection as well. Uh, and so not only is she talking about how to become a better artist um, and doing the things that artists do, uh, which baffles me most times, but she also brings the stories of those veterans in as well. So if she's looking at a, a, a photograph from Ray Stewie, um, the chaplain in Vietnam, um, then she's also talking about his story, why he was there, what he did afterwards. So she's she's breaking down those barriers and, and, and closing that divide as well. And whenever you mentioned your biggest event of the year, I was not anticipating your next word saying a cemetery tour. Uh, I was thinking <laughs> fireworks or <laughs> something. So uh, talk to me a bit about this. It, it, it sounds a bit grim, but it, it no, also sounds it, very educational. I, I mean, I, I suppose it, it does maybe sound a bit grim to walk around a cemetery for 90 minutes and learn, you know, maybe about some of this history. But it's really, like I said, it's a fantastic, first of all, it's fantastic park. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you pick any city in the U.S. and you pick your most beautiful public space. Um, and, and this cemetery is on par with that. It's just a gorgeous place to be. Um, and then this, the, the veteran history that's out there. Uh, there is a huge veteran section and we don't even make it out there. That's too far out in the cemetery to go. So just walking around the general cemetery space, there's so many veteran stories. Some of them are, are sad, some of them are a little grim, but others are just simply fantastic. Um, and they range all the way from Spanish-American War, um, uh, Vietnam, World War I, World War II, Civil War. Um, there's just so many fantastic stories to tell. And then we also intersperse the tour with living history reenactors. Uh, so we go through our collection, we find, first of all, we theme it, then we find those people in Wisconsin history that are gonna fit into that theme that have those great stories. We hire a, a wonderful director who's also uh, an actor, um, director, producer. He does a lot of uh, radio and a lot of stage work. Um, he hires actors, he writes the scripts. And so you are presented with this living history as well as you're going through the cemetery tour. Um, we, don't, we don't bill it and we don't uh, set it up as anything spooky or anything like that, even though it is in October. Uh, this is just straight history. Uh, we have so many repeat customers. We have people coming back year after year. I'm already getting phone calls from schools and from uh, just the general population saying, oh, when can I sign up for this next tour? When are you gonna have this? What's mm -hmm. it gonna be about this year? There's just a, a lot of, of, of interest in, in what we do with our cemetery tours every year, not only in Madison itself, but throughout the state. And we've even had people come from out of state uh, just to come to this tour. And just to kind of, if I could just mention one more thing, with our virtual programming that we've done, uh, we've expanded our audience, not just from the state of Wisconsin, all across the U.S. Every event that I have that's a virtual event, we have people from all over the U.S., but more importantly, we have them from all over the world. We've had people, come, we've had people come to our virtual events from Australia, uh, from Japan, uh, certainly all the Western European countries, um, South America, they just come from everywhere just because they're really engaged in what it is we're doing. And that lets us know that, that, that we're successful. You know, that, you must have read my mind because that sort of was going to be my next question. Because as VBC went through the same pivot, we were had to expand nationally and have had on international guests, um, you know, over the past two years after the pandemic hit. Uh, and it's been uh, wonderful to be able to expand that network and gain more stories. And we say that's like the silver lining of the pandemic is that, you know, yeah, we were getting wonderful stories here in Western PA from all of our incredible veterans, um, but certainly we weren't reaching out as far as, as we could. And, and boy, it's been eye-opening how many stories are out there and how many people are willing to share them. Um, and other than just sort of your virtual programming, is there a way that people from out of state can engage with the exhibits? Is there an online function for that? Um, there is uh, a, a, a smaller uh, online function for that. Um, we're trying to work toward, um, and, and we have been for a little while, trying to work toward basically taking a tour, recording it, and being able to put that online. But what that looks like, uh, we, we've had discussion back and forth on what is the best you know, the best way to approach that. Do we do it in small snippets? Do we do it in one big, large format? Um, and so we've gone through different iterations of that and you can find um, samples of that on our website, uh, but we're still trying to figure out 
what that's going to look like and, and how to best put those stories out there. Um, you know, certainly you don't want to bore everybody to tears and walk them through a two hour virtual tour. Uh, you know, you can only sit behind your computer screen for so long. Mm-hmm. So you, you have, and just like with the BBC, you know, we it's, it's unfortunate to say, but you're absolutely right. The pandemic did have a, a couple silver linings and being able to suss out this, this virtual presence um, was definitely one of them. And so we're still trying to do that right now. And I'm not so sure that we're ever going to stop trying to do that. We're never going to get to that point where, oh, this is, you know, this is the be all end all. This is how we're going to do it from now on. Uh, technology is going to change probably faster than our museum will. And so we still have to keep uh, creating the content that's going to fit those virtual platforms. But it's also what the people want to see and keeps them engaged. Well, other suggestions I'd have for engaging with, with what we have is um, our YouTube, all the pro- virtual programs we've done, we've put on our YouTube channel. Um, one of the ones that's actually been most popular this year is back in January, we did a dissecting the roots of the Ukraine conflict curator conversation. And it's amazing how many hits we've had people just, you know, giving the background of why are these, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, if you go on our website, lizvetsmuseum.com, um, and you go into our collections area, you can search our online catalog of objects, artifacts, or uh, archives, and our oral histories. We've got the fourth largest oral history collection in the United States among military museums. Mm-hmm. And there's over 2,500 of them from the Spanish-American War. We've actually got two Spanam vets all the way to today. Wow. You can read transcripts. You can listen to them. Um, just go into any of the search bars. And, and if you, you know, if you want, let's say you want to see what happens, you know, it's say, you know, Desert Storm. You know, you want to see, put in a unit, put in Desert Storm, put in a location. It'll pop up all the relevant collections. And then you can just go through. We've got information on the veterans, photographs of the objects. You can read some of the stuff that's digitized. Um, it's a great way to see what we have. It's a tremendous resource. And to be honest, I would love to see more people, more people paw through it. There's some great stuff in there. That's certainly what BBC is attempting to do. We've recently got our own Veterans History Project up off the ground and are just, you know, starting to get people involved and in the know of, hey, you know, connect with us. We'll connect you with a volunteer and we want to catalog your story. Um, You know, as I said earlier, there's there's no shortage of stories and you want to make sure to get them all before they're gone or forgotten. Exactly. Uh, The history, anytime you speak with a museum or think about a museum, you kind of think like, okay, it's history. Um, But that history really does uh, have a purpose and it needs people to be passionate about that to continue the legacy. As you were saying, Chris, like, you know, when you bring students in, these are the people that we're going to be handing this off to, you know, eventually. Um, And I'm thinking more along the lines of like Civ Mill Divide that you start back Spanish American or Civil War, Everybody kind of knew someone that was in the military. They were in the military themselves. We come up to today, and we know that the civil mill divide has never been wider, um, that many people don't know anybody in the military. Many people don't know anything about the military. Um, how, how do Other than education, how do we continue forward? How, how do we continue to bring people into the museum and make it important for them to learn this history? I think the big thing, and, and Eric, feel free to jump in, but one of the things that, that I when we talk about bridging the civil military divide, we're trying to demystify the military. Mm-hmm. That's the word that I use all the de- de- demystify. A lot of people, uh, when I was living in Hampton Roads, Virginia, which per capita is the number one military community in the entire United States. Mm-hmm. Um, we were getting a briefing once from uh, about the military presence in Hampton Roads, which is, I don't need to tell you and your listeners, Sean, is considerable. Mm-hmm. And even using the phrase of how many four-star headquarters there are you know, which four-star general level headquarters, right? We all know what that means. It was amazing to me how many people who had grown up in that region didn't know what that meant. Thought it was like a nice hotel, like four-star? They they didn't even know. Yeah, I I think that's what they thought it was. It was like a Yelp review or something. And it's like, (laughs) um, no. (laughs) And that, I've always remembered that because that's something that even people that grow up around it in a place like that, have trouble understanding. And mm-hmm. so if whatever we can do to demystify the military as an institution and help put it in plain language, if you will. The other thing is goes back to what we talked about, about making it relevant to people. You know, our new, our temporary exhibit, we change out our exhibits every couple of years. 
And our current temporary exhibit is called Souvenirs of Service, The Things They Kept. And it's from the Civil War right to today. And quite frankly, it's a lot of the cool stuff that we have in our collection that we've wanted to put on display for a while. We just haven't had a chance. Yeah. You know, we've got, you know, the souvenirs from the Civil War all the way around, photographs. Uh, it's amazing some of the commonalities. Soldiers, soldiers and sailors love to have their pictures taken riding like carabao and camels and things like that. You know, and you can see them from different eras. But we've also got, you know, the guy, a guy parachuted out, out of a B-29 in, in over China. The parachute that saved his life, he sent home to his wife and said, here, make a dress. And we have her dress on display. Wow. Um, we've got, and, and we've got some of our oral histories in there. People talking about, this is why I saved this item mm -hmm. and brought it home. And that's all great. But notice what I said at the beginning, souvenirs. Everybody understands the concept of a souvenir, why mm -hmm. you collect souvenirs. So we're starting with what people, a concept that everybody understands and say, okay, have you thought about how this applies to veterans? Mm -hmm. And then people are like, oh, let's see what kind of souvenirs veterans brought home. And then you walk through and you engage with these really amazing stories. And so I would, in answer to your question, I would offer those two thoughts. Um, and Eric, I don't know if you've got anything to, to add to that. No, I, I, that's that's the perfect summation of that, Chris. You know, it's it, everybody. You doesn't matter where you go. Family goes on vacation to Disneyland. A soldier gets deployed to you know X place in the world. You bring things back with you. And like Chris said, you know, you start from that common level, that common understanding. Souvenirs. Everybody knows what that is. Um, and and once and it's 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 great to see people walk through there, and and you just you see them light up. You know, they're like, that's what I, I would have brought that home with me. You know, they, they're not saying it, but you can see it in their face. Um, and, and it's not, I would have brought that home with me if I was in a war zone. It's, I would have brought that home with me no matter where I was. Um, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's great to see those connections being made. Um, and, and for me, that's, that's one of the, the biggest reasons why I love doing what I'm doing, what I'm doing is because you get to see those connections being made by, made by people who, perhaps didn't make those connections before you see that light bulb go off and you know i see that on a daily basis and every time i see it i know I, i've done my job I, I earned my paycheck today um and it's 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 just such a great motivator um and you know and like chris said there are those commonalities between the civilian and the military se sectors um and it's it's everybody knows they're there but at the same time, they don't know they're there. And so it's just making them pop up for people. Um, and, and once you do that, you know, you're successful you're doing your job. I've spent time down in the Hampton Roads area. I have family that, that lives down in Virginia Beach. And I don't know how anybody who can listen to that many jets go overhead, not think anything about the military, understand, you know, you got Oceania, you have to drive 10, 15 minutes around it just to get to a mall. Like, <laughs> you think that take a little bit of time to be like, what's that big thing over there? And why are jets landing on it? Um, or you hear them firing off live ammunition out and out in the ocean, you know, it shakes your windows and you're like, what's going on? Um, so I find that incredible, Chris, that, that people that even live there may be completely oblivious to what's going on. Well, it's, it's not that they're oblivious, but it's mm -hmm. the Navy. Ah, it's the, the Air Force mm -hmm. and they, or it's, it all fades into just the, the military. They don't see a difference between Langley and Oceana, for example, mm -hmm. or the Naval Station in Little Creek. They just know that this is the military base. This is the Navy base. Right. And they don't really think about what's there. Mm -hmm. And they don't really realize what, in, particularly in the case of Norfolk, which is also has a NATO headquarters, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people may not realize what that really means to have the only NATO headquarters outside of Europe. Mm -hmm. You know, for those of us who are around the military have been involved with it what have you we understand you know the importance of air combat command for the air force at langley air force base mm -hmm. you know and what it means for the air force to a lot of people it's just it's not that they're oblivious it's just that they it's just this thing that's over there right not not just a thing the people as well um you know they like chris said they, they see it just it's the military but the military consists of fathers and mothers and sons mm -hmm. and daughters. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody has those. Everybody has a mother and a father. 
Uh, everybody has relations, uh, family members, you know, extended or, or immediate. Um, and so just, just showing people who don't put those together that these are just people just like you, just like me, just like anybody walking down the street. We just have a different job. Um, it, it really shouldn't set us apart. It should actually bring us closer together. And, and I think that's, that's one of the things that we're trying to do here is just bring us closer together as opposed to putting people in this box or in that box, um, in this category or in that category. We're all just people. Just some of us have different jobs than others. That's what I always talk with uh, my civilian friends about it. They're like, well, how do you talk to veterans? I'm like, they're, they're, they're a person. I didn't understand it two years ago, but the more conversations I have, the more it's like, they're a person who has a job. Talk to them about their job. You, you know, we chat about our job all the time. Um, two questions for you guys before I let you go. Uh, first being for the people that are in Wisconsin that may be listening to this podcast and not know anything about the, the Wisconsin Veterans Museum, uh, what, what should they know? And, and how, how do you get them to come on in? I'll take that one, Chris. And, and Go I'll for it, Eric. The, the thing that they should know is that we are conveniently located right here across the street from the Capitol. We're free. Like Chris said, we're open six days a week, uh, Tuesday through Sunday. Uh, the Sunday hours um, are through uh, April through September only. Uh, once we go into the winter, uh, we lose our Sunday hours. So we drop down to five days a week, but that we're free. Um, you can come in here anytime you want. You could spend as much time in here as you like. There's no requirement. There's no test, nothing like that. Uh, and you, every time you come in here, you're likely to see or at least observe something different. Um, we have so much packed in to this small space. We only have about 3% of our collection on display, but you know we've got a Vietnam helicopter. We've got a World War II airplane. We've got a World War I airplane. We've got a World War II tank. We've got a cannon. We've got so much stuff in here. So every time you come in, you're likely to see or at least realize that there's different things in here and you're going to see different stories and you can come in here whenever you like. And I think for the people in Wisconsin, that's what we want them to know the most is, is this is your museum. We're an educational component of the Wisconsin Department of Veteran Affairs. Uh, so this is a resource for them to use. Please come and use it. If someone has a bit of family uh, souvenirs, family uh, heirlooms from their military service, do they just bring them into the into the, the museum, or is there someone they can contact? Uh, that we would ask them not to do. Um, we do, you know, even though we only have three percent of our collection on display, we still have a rather large collection, and so to have you know fifty or sixty specific World War II uniforms, uh, we just can't we can't sustain that sort of collection rate. So we do have a committee that looks at everything that is proposed being donated. Um, we'll take where, where we see gaps in our collection, we'll take those pieces in, or if it's a really unique piece, uh, but there is a process It all starts on our website. Um, and if you go to the section uh, titled collections or donations, um, that will walk you through the process. We've got a great registrar uh, uh, who works at an offsite facility. Um, this facility was just built a couple years ago. Um, it's called the State Archival Preservation Facility. And so we moved all of our collections from our physical space here at the museum to this proper archival and collection storage space. Um, and so the process starts with her proposing the donation. There's a couple forms you have to fill out, but they're really small. Uh, it's not a whole lot of paperwork. Um, and, and then like Chris said, this goes in front of a committee. They make decisions about what to accept and what not to accept. Unfortunately, we can't accept everybody's donation. Uh, but we try our best to fill the gaps you know, that are missing in our collection. Or like I said, if you, if you have those really unique pieces that just beg to be taken, um, then we take those as well. And last question for you, Chris, is uh, how do they donate? How do people uh, donate to the mission of, of the Wisconsin Veterans Museum and, and help you guys keep the lights on? I appreciate that, Sean. Um, we've got a partner foundation that assists with our programs. As a matter of fact, things like cemetery tours, our virtual programs are all through the foundation. We are state employees of the state of Wisconsin. Um, if you go on our website, wizvetsmuseum.com, or you just Google Wisconsin Veterans Museum, um, at the top, you'll see a, a, a bar of things. You can see our events, you can see our uh, um, exhibits. The collections, the stuff uh, Eric was just talking about is in our collections tab. Um, and then at the end, there's a tab for our foundation. It's definitely last, not being least, 
And in there, there's information on how you can join the foundation, how you can support and donate. Uh, we've got some great events, the, the golf outing Eric mentioned. There's a couple of other events the foundation sponsors throughout the year on behalf of the museum. And if you want to support, that's the first place to start. Excellent. Um, well, I hope that people do uh, come out and be a part of what you have going on at the museum. I know I'm going to join in for at least the next couple movie nights. Uh, I want to make some suggestions because I'm a bit of a movie buff myself. Uh, can't wait for those. Uh, and uh, I hope to our listeners that you're able to get out to Wisconsin. And if you do get there, make sure you take in the Veterans Museum. It sounds like a really wonderful place uh, and an incredible mission to support. Um, Eric and Chris, I want to thank you both for, for coming on to the Scuttlebutt today to, to talk to me about the museum and a bit about your family history and your service as well. Um, it, was, uh, it was a pleasure and an honor. And to our listeners, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And if you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can email me at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Eric and Chris, thank you again so much. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much, Sean. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full-service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's D&D Auto Salvage. Dot com. Uh, thank you so much to D&D. &D. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.